Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Slacktivist Action Group. Theresa May held an election, didn't she? She had a majority of plus five, held the election, and now she has a majority of minus eight. She put herself in front of the electors and then didn't want to talk to any of them. And obviously, if there is an election that we regard as unnecessary, you will get punished for it. Because we've got to get some shit together if we're going to go and vote. We've got to work out where our polling station is. We've got to find the right primary school. I mean, if you get the wrong one, you're in right trouble, aren't you? What are you doing here? Get out. We'll call the police. (laughs) And the day after the election, George Osborne, he called Theresa May a dead woman walking. Thing was, of course, that she looked a little like that before the election, didn't she? (laughs) With her in number 10 and Philip Hammond in number 11, it looks like the undead have taken over Downing Street. It is important you look like you're enjoying your job at least some of the time. And she was asked, wasn't she, during the election campaign, Theresa May, she was asked, what's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? And she said, running through a field of wheat. You have got to feel sorry for her husband, haven't you? He's there going, oh, Teresa, I fancy doing something naughty. I've got us some leather kit. And she goes, ooh, I hope it's a pair of trousers costing £995. (laughs) Teresa May's love of high fashion in some ways crosses over into vanity, doesn't it? You think about it, yes, David Cameron spent some money on clothes, but when he wore a suit, it traditionally looked like a suit, didn't it? Margaret Thatcher, when she wore a suit, it traditionally looked like a suit. Half the time these days, Theresa May seems to wear some sort of trouser suit that makes her look like Coco the Clown. The other half of the time, she seems to look like some sort of tribute act to the fucking Pet Shop Boys. (laughs) We'll call that a joke that divides the audience, ladies and gentlemen. And she accused, didn't she, Labour? She accused, accused them of forming a coalition of chaos if they got into power. And then only today we find out she has struck a deal with the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party. Not as people saying that peace agreement in Northern Ireland is at risk if the government is not neutral between the parties in Northern Ireland. Peace is a fragile thing. I've been over on tour to Northern Ireland quite a lot. And last time I was over there, they put me up in the Europa Hotel. The Europa Hotel is a four-star hotel, is the most bombed hotel in the world. It has been bombed 36 times. I'll be honest with you, it wasn't the best night's kip I've ever had. Because there's always a little bit of you think, I know the peace process has been going on for 20 years, but somebody may have had one beer too many and just go, oh, for old time's sake, come on. (laughs) And obviously the economy in Northern Ireland has been picking up a bit, you may know. Game of Thrones is now filmed in Northern Ireland. To most people, of course, Game of Thrones set in medieval times. To a lot of the DUP, it's actually set in the future, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) 
I suppose we should maybe look, before we introduce our guest, we should possibly look at the one bright side to the Queen's speech. Looks like Donald Trump's visit to Britain may not be happening. Slacktivist people are excited by that. You probably heard three cheers, but most of them secretly inside were feeling that, and you could just tell it. And the thing about Trump, of course, he's got his problems at the moment, hasn't he? He's got his links with Russia. There is rumoured, isn't there, to be a video that Vladimir Putin has that shows Donald Trump a few years ago shagging loads of prostitutes in a Moscow hotel. Now, the fact that this video has not come to be seen doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It may only mean that Trump has got a better video of Putin (laughs) or that Putin is in the actual video itself. (laughs) And although all these problems, he said, oh, I'm going to still build the wall, isn't he? He has said, Trump, that he's going to build the wall. This, even though over the last 20 years they have discovered over 200 tunnels between Mexico and the United States. <laughs> and you're thinking, if they're discovering tunnels, the Mexicans are building them when there is no wall, what is the point of building the wall? <laughs> but I actually think the Mexicans may well, in the end, offer to build the wall for him because it'd be a brilliant way of using up all that rubble they've been digging out for the tunnels. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, would you now please welcome to the stage... Peter Hayne, Observer columnist, Catherine Bennett and Lucy Porter. Thank you very much all for coming. Uh, Welcome along. This is our Slacktivist Action Group. We always like to um, relax into it, as it were, if we can all make a little confession to make everybody feel slightly better about themselves. Um, (laughs) Confess to something that in an ideal world you would be slightly less slack about. Lucy, if we start off with you, is that... uh, What have you got to offer the group? I'm so slack in so many ways. Today, uh, I lost yet another pair of sunglasses. So my thing I think I would like to be less slack about is losing my personal possessions. Because I tried buying expensive sunglasses to see if that would stop me losing the sunglasses. It doesn't. It means I've lost expensive sunglasses. My keys... I about, I would say, once every two weeks have to wake my husband up at 2 o'clock in the morning when I've come back without my keys. And when I die, the thing that's going to flash before me will just be a montage of my husband opening the door with that kind of, I'm more disappointed than angry look on his face. Is the reason that you forget your keys is that you go out, you put your sunglasses on, right? (laughs) Then you forget to look for your keys or you can't find them. (laughs) And then you come back and you've got neither your keys nor your sunglasses. And there's your husband there wearing the fucking sunglasses and going, (laughs) not you again. Yes. Yeah, well, sometimes I do actually leave them at home and then he opens the door, sort of dangling them in his hand, having known since about eight o'clock that she's going to wake me up because she's forgotten her keys. But rather than text me and tell me, he decides to wait and have the joy of having that look. Really? To be honest, that's curious. I'd, I'd, I'd rather have the joy of a good night's kip and leave them outside. That would be. That you would don't hate me as much as he does. <laughs> oh, we're sharing. We're sharing now already. We're learning a lot. So, Catherine, what about you? What would you like to offer to the group? Box sets. Um, and what I would like to be less slack about is, is watching them on time instead of never. Because what happens is everyone starts going on about a box set and I always think, when I hear about it, oh, it sounds crap, I'll just wait a week or two and, you know, I'm sure it won't be as good. They'll all go off it and then I won't ever have to watch it. And then, you know, it sort of gathers pace and then suddenly everyone's talking about it. And I still think if they'll stop. And it usually gets to about season two or three and I think, oh, I'm just going to have to watch this or I'll never have a conversation anywhere again. And then, by the t- and then suddenly I realise the only other person who's talking about this thing from the beginning is Michael Gove. <laughs> who both suddenly started at the same time talking about Game of Thrones. I, yeah. I just can't be this join at the same time as them. So now I'm starting... I've started really early watching, actually, The Handmaid's Tale, if that counts as a box set. But anyway, we're trying to get in at the... You, you certainly don't want to be, you know, there and Michael Gove inviting you round as the only other person who's watching a particular <laughs> bo- box set at the moment. Sarah and I just wondered if you'd like to finally catch up on The Wire, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> he had a favourite character and everything. So. For Game of Thrones. I think I'm never going to do Was... it now. I can't do it after Michael Gove. I'm just well, gonna... presumably he, he loves... Game of Thrones, Michael Gove, because it's everybody stabbing everybody else in the back, isn't it? So he would, he would absolutely love that. I was going to offer to the group myself, I was going to offer, a, I would love to be better on a treadmill. 
I've had lots of lots of things on a running treadmill, and the, the last one was because you know you go in and you think, oh, it's going okay, and you sort of slightly lose concentration. And I lost so much concentration, I slipped off. Right, <laughs> only I slipped off. I don't know what, what, what was happening, but I basically banged my chin on the actual treadmill as I slipped off. But that had such force that it actually threw me up as it threw me off into an upright position. And then everybody was sort of looking at me in the gym, and I wasn't quite sure how I could front this out. So I just started running on the spot, like it was exactly as I'd intended it. So it's chinicide. <laughs> well, I've done that as well. I fell off. Uh, and uh, I was on my own in the gym, though. And uh, I broke a rib. I didn't know at the time that I'd broken a rib, but I was in agony. Because it's true, you fall off. Because I was sort of just thinking about something else and fell off. Where, where are my keys? Where's my sunglasses? <laughs> exactly. That sort of thing. Yes, yeah. I'm very absent-minded. And uh, so I fell off. And then, stupidly, then tried to get back on by putting my hands on the still-moving treadmill, which then kind of flung my, my chest and ribs into the thing. Broke the rib... But then got up and, you know, like so embarrassed and I was so... And I kind of... I couldn't... Obviously couldn't do anything else, but I went... I limped back into the changing room and I got dressed. And then I came out and I thought, well, the good thing is at least nobody saw it. At least it was my private shame. And then I came out into the reception and they were all watching it on the CCTV. (laughs) Are you okay? Are you okay? (laughs) But with a slight sort of titter as well. (laughs) kind of... (laughs) We saw you. And then did you have to change your gym membership? You couldn't be going back? Oh, yeah, I'm not going back. Oh, there she is. There she is. The lady who busted a rib. Here she is. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote off six months subscription (laughs) for the shame. Peter, what about you? What would you like to offer to the group? I'd like to see my six grandchildren more. And, and where are they, Peter? Where, where... Well, I live in South Wales, uh, in Neath, where I was MP for 24 years, and that's near Swansea. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. no worries. I, I, and, I did uh, question time from Neath, so I'm well aware oh, right. exactly where Neath is. I'll and be honest, if I never have to go back there, it won't trouble me. But, um... <laughs> Right, but I'm going to get you, 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 get you blacklisted in Neath. No, not at all. I love South Wales. I absolutely adore it. But there are better places than Neath in South Wales. There's nowhere better place than Neath in the world, Andy. But there there anyway, are times my... when even Port Talbot looks better than Neath, and they're next door You're to each other. You're joking. You must be joking. <laughs> I am. Four of my grandchildren are in Cambridge. The other two are in Windsor. So I see the Windsor ones a little more, but uh, they're lovely. By the way, sorry for the suits. I've just come from the House of Lords, and I've got to go back for the wind-ups. The wind-ups are the end of a debate. I've been speaking on the economy against austerity and neoliberalism and so on. And uh, you've got to go back for the end. Like, you've got to be at the beginning. So that's yeah, why I'm so glad in the I thought you meant more wind-ups like a sort of Noel Edmonds gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> like you're all hiding no on Zermin or no. something. Uh, They're all asleep. You were the only one who wasn't asleep, had to make a speech, and now they haven't woken up. There's nobody speaking at the moment, and you'll just go back, finish the speech, wake them up. 58 speakers. 58 speakers. Five minutes each. Talking about the Lords, you are. You've been a Lord since 2015. Ed Miliband uh, said, do you fancy it? And you you said, oh, you hadn't really thought about it. But you And your reason, you said that you'd like Lords reform, but uh, when it came down to it... uh, you thought that people within the Lords would need to be voting for that reform. So you effectively were saying you're the turkey who will be voting for Christmas when that comes round next time. Is that Definitely. right, Peter? Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I never thought I'd go there. And he asked me to, and I said, I don't believe in the place. I think it should be elected. He said, that's my position. I need people in there to do it, because that's when he was hoping to be Prime Minister. So that was a bit of a life-changing... Still mind you, he's got a job on Radio 2 now, so, you know... Not, <laughs> yeah. He shaved a dog. I mean, <laughs> no, it's not all gone bad, no. is it? No, and you, you obviously, Catherine, you've, you've written many times about uh, the Lords and how the hereditary yeah. peers, I seem to remember you writing some articles on hereditary peers yeah. and how we have 92 of them now, and that never changes because they get to elect each other. But we never actually have any more hereditary peers. They don't tend to, to do them anymore. So possibilis- there is a kind of an, an endless supply of them, though. They do keep reproducing yeah. them. But from a smaller and smaller um, gene pool, isn't it? So it's yeah. like, you know, I'm guessing their contributions are less and less... The uh, worst thing about that is that they pride themselves, they preen, don't they? Say, we're the only ones here who are actually elected. We're the actual Democrats here because we got elected, unlike people like you. But no. elected amongst themselves, 92 yeah, but, you know, other in inbreds. And, um, you know, well, it's actually even the- worse than that because of the, the, the Liberal by-election, a by-election, because a Liberal died, and there were three voting, there were four candidates, and one was elected. This is the farce that's played out. Mind you, we got rid of about 600 hereditary peers. So Not the, enough in 1999, so that means the Tory government 
the first time in the history of a Tory government that's not had a majority in the Lords. They're like any other Labour government's never had a majority. You know, how many Labour, and they hate it. How many Labour hereditaries are there at the moment? I think there are about three. But you've still got over 800 in there, 800 I Lords, in, in, when there's only something like 250 seats. I mean, it, you know, you say there's 58 speaking, there's probably another 600 who'd quite like to speak who can't actually get in the chamber. No, no, most of them don't no, speak. No. But they all need officers, so we keep buying up. I say we, the Lords keeps buying up all the office blocks around Westminster. It's ridiculous. We're talking of ridiculous things. You, you were Northern Ireland, not that it was a ridiculous thing, but we have the DUP now in some sort of agreement with the current government. Now, you've said many times over the last few weeks, as Northern Ireland Minister, very important that you were seen to be neutral within the parties in Northern Ireland, and now, obviously, it's not going to be the case so much. You obviously very much for the Good Friday Agreement. You introduced, by all accounts, Martin McGuinness to Ian Paisley for the first time. And your job was basically, because they'd never spoken, they would say something to you as the neutral. You would then pass it on to the other party. You'd then say something to you. And then, you know, you'd then pass that back on. You were sort of in the middle of a very important game of Chinese whispers. And presumably there must have been times when either Martin McGuinness or Ian Paisley said something to you and you thought, well, I'm not going to pass that on to the other one. That's, uh, that's not going to help the peace process. Tell us a little bit how it, how it worked, Peter. Yeah, it works exactly that way. I mean, you, there was a key point before we got the 2007 settlement when Ian Paisley went into power with Martin McGuinness. You remember that Chuckle Brothers moment? I mean, extraordinary. Something <laughs> nobody thought would ever, ever, ever happen. It took months of heavy lifting, and at one point Paisley said to me, look, I'll do the deal with them, the devil, as he called them, if they sign up to policing and the rule of law, which historically was very difficult for them because they didn't believe the British should be in Ireland. And I said, I think they will. I then had to go back to Sinn Féin and say, he will do the deal if you do this. And they said, are you sure he will? And I said, yes, I think he will. So they were both relying on me and Tony Blair, who was the Prime Minister at the time, to actually be the honest broker between them, because they'd never exchanged a word between each other. They'd arrive at Stormont, standing next to each other, one of them once told me, at the urinal (laughs) in the gents, having a pee, literally, side by side, as one does, if one's a gent in Northern Ireland, and they'd never say, nice day. McGuinness... Yeah, exactly. I don't know what they normally do. Sinn Féin tried, to be fair, tried to say... What you mean men do? Or I mean, in generally? the urinal, do you normally pass the time of day with... Well, person? sometimes, you, you know, you're standing there having a pee, you'd say something if you know the person. Don't you just wee the urinal cake back and forth between each other? That's what I always thought. You, you seem to know an awful lot about this, Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> the point is they'd never talked to each other, even though they were working in the same parliamentary building, the Stormont. So, you know, it's exactly that. You had to be an honest broker. And, uh, and I think that's destroyed by this deal. And when you were chatting to them, did you get a sense that they might have this incredible relationship, this, this chuckle brothers, as you say? Did they, one of them tell you a joke, you repeat it to the other one, and then laugh, and you think, this, this relationship could work, this could be something. No, you never did that. You never <laughs> no, did that. Didn't risk but it. Paisley was enormously good fun in private. Can you believe that? I mean, he was this ranting, never, 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 history of sectarianism and bigotry, Charming in, in private. He, he was very keen on family, old-fashioned courtesy, always hold the door open for you, all this kind of thing. Let somebody else use the urinal first, that exactly. sort of thing. Yeah. And Martin McGuinness, I once discovered, is also very charming. He came into my office, he kept on looking at the Sky News um, monitor in the corner, and it was in 2005, the summer, when I first took office, and the Ashes series was on, England versus Australia. And he kept looking at it. I said to him, Martin, why are you looking at that? He said, I'm an England cricket fan. (laughs) IRA commander, England cricket fan. Not only was he an England cricket fan, but he knew all the players. He had an opinion on, you know, Simon Jones was... Do any of you follow cricket? Simon Jones was a Welsh fast bowler at the time with a reverse swing he invented. He knew all about that. I mean, I don't know much about cricket, but I suspect that a lot of the time, if you hated England, watching them play cricket might actually be quite good fun. I mean... (laughs) They won the Ashes, though, is OK, right. The point is, they were both interesting personalities, and I did think they had the capacity to see the other person for a person in the end, rather than an enemy. And at the moment, Stormont is dissolved um, over this uh, renewable heating scandal. 
Um, Arlene Foster was intimately involved. They had this scheme where for every pound of renewable energy you used, the government in Northern Ireland would give you £1.60 back. So you were essentially making 60 pence. And so everybody realised that the more they heated, the more money they got. So people were heating absolutely everything. Supposedly some farmer made a million quid for heating a barn that he'd never used before. <laughs> Presumably the cow was absolutely loving it, you know, like they, they'd got their own little sauna and stuff, you know. One of them going, we're going to have to go out now, and the other going, no, no, five more minutes, we can take it, five more minutes. <laughs> the milk's coming out as cappuccinos. <laughs> yes. have, you met, have you met Ollie Foster? I have, yeah. Don't tell me, she secretly she... loves watching gay yeah. pride. Um, I thought she'd be a lot better, actually. Yeah, she's, she's a decent woman, she's... Um, you know, she, her, her, yeah, abortion and a lot of other things. Mm. Uh, but you know, she was a schoolgirl when her bus was shot up by the IRA, IRA. Her father was wounded by the IRA. So you know, that comes with all that yeah. history. But yeah, in, in terms of uh, you know, there was accusations that Arlene Foster actually knew very much that this scandal was being abused, the, the renewable heating thing, but didn't close it down as quickly as she could have done. And then they had loads more applications from a lot of people who were her friends. And the accusation was that she knew all about this and was actually waiting to close it down until a lot of her friends had taken advantage of it. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, Andy. But um, the thing about it is I thought it was absolutely terribly mishandled by her. She was the number one in the department. As a minister, you take responsibility. Somebody should be taking responsibility as a minister in the government for Grenville. Somebody should. And own up that cuts and... Sorry to rant. Cuts and cuts and cuts. Outsourcing everything, privatising everything, saying public is bad, private is good. At some point, you're going to get a Grenville, and we have. And in in terms of of comedy, Lucy, you know, you... quoted as saying recently that you feel that everybody needs to uh, in some ways be a political comedian at the moment is that partly because we've had so much politics recently in terms of uh, are you forgetting that you actually ever said this or you uh... (laughs) I did look slightly vague there didn't I no no I absolutely believe that I think that yeah it's I've never really talked about my politics in my work before but uh, the referendum I think kind of made it almost impossible because we did the Edinburgh Festival just after the referendum result and it kind of felt like the elephant in the room for everyone. It was like, oh, God, you know, there's just this, this kind of division in the country. And I think we were sort of all set against each other. The division seemed to be getting wider and wider and wider and things are getting more combative. And it does feel like you go on stage in front of an audience and people are... They feel like there's a, an amazing kind of something afoot and there's excitement about politics for the first time in a long time that I can remember. And also, a set, like, a weird sense of national pride as well about, you know, since the awful terrorist atrocities and Grenfell and all the terrible things that have been happening. I think people are really proud of the way that, you know, the British reacted with incredible sort of stoicism and strength, obviously only to fall apart completely the, the minute the temperature went above 30 degrees centigrade. But, uh, you know, there's a real sense that I think that social media has helped as well, that, you know, everyone's debating stuff on social media. And, well, it also, you know, with the five-year fixed parliament act, there was, a, there was a time when you think, oh, well, there's going to be nothing else for five years, you know, mm. we can concentrate on other things. And then since 2010, what have we had? We've had a vote, a referendum, a referendum, a vote, another referendum and a vote. There, there has been an awful lot of politics... Brenda, down in Bristol, doing her nut at the moment, presumably. <laughs> but also, you know, people say that we're voting for politics, uh, there's hardly any point in certain constituencies, but if Labour can win Kensington, every constituency is in the game. Sloan Square or Harrods and, you know, you know Harvey Nichols, your boys took a hell of a beating, really. <laughs> so you must have been uh, pleased that Labour um, I was, first of all, absolutely astonished... And thrilled. I mean, I don't know anybody in the political world who thought this was going to happen. Even Jeremy himself. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, those things about Russian oligarchs, uh, if they buy the houses, they still can't vote, can they? So it's possibly not surprising if we've seen what's happened with Grenfell, why why Kensington has gone that way. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the results show the more educated you are, more or less, the more middle class you are, the more you're likely to have voted Labour a few weeks ago. Well, isn't it virtually everybody is more likely to have voted Labour up until about age 55, isn't it? That, 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 was, that was the demographic, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, it was. 
And you, you put your name to a letter in The Guardian talking about um, the economy, saying that we should very much uh, try and have a soft Brexit, that we should be in the single market along with 50 other Labour politicians. You also want a second referendum on the exit deal. Not that you, you're very keen, I noticed, that you shouldn't be called a second referendum. You're very keen that it should be called a first referendum. A final say. The final say. The only disadvantage of calling it the, the first referendum on the final deal is it sounds like we may have another referendum on that after we didn't like whatever we said for that one. But, yeah. I can't get enough referendums. You Referenda. love it. I don't know what it is, but, yeah, no, yeah. I've, got, I've got voting fever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do think, uh, you know, this whole th- disaster started off with a referendum, but people voted against something. I think they voted against the political class as well as against the European Union. But you say, you know... It's a country is split down the middle, is the truth. 52-48, it's like the winner takes all and sod the rest has been the attitude. But I don't think people knew what they were voting for because it was never given a choice. They knew what they were voting against and that's yeah. got to be respected. Yeah. That's why I think the final deal should be put to a referendum, first a vote in Parliament, then a referendum. People finally have to decide, do they really want to take this disastrous, in my view, leap into you know, much poorer country, lose a lot of the rights and entitlements that we've we've had. And actually, what sort of country is Britain going to become? An isolated offshore island of the European continent rather than a proud internationalist country. That's my view. And your your point was that... um, You know, people will have the final say if they think, fine, we want to go for this. But even if we stay within the single market, there are still lots of ways that immigration can be limited, uh, ways that we haven't taken advantage of so far. You you were making the point in the paper, people come over here from the rest of Europe, don't get a job within three months, we could kick them out. This is something that we we can do. Corbyn could have... All the things you say people didn't realise... I mean, Corbyn could have been saying more about them, couldn't he, at the time, instead of saying, oh, I'm 70-30, or I understand why you've got so many reservations. And Labour are partly responsible for the outcome. Yeah, I think we were. Uh, I think mostly it was Osborne and Cameron who were so arrogant well, of about it. of course they should it. never have done it, but I mean... But I don't think we were sufficiently, the, the leadership, passionate about staying in it was Europe. pathetic leadership on it. I mean, it was um, completely lukewarm, and the very people who were their core supporters, and the people who are going to lose the most, they didn't get that message across for them, did no, they? No, they don't. Didn't, I mean, I had on the doorstep in South Wales, in Valley constituencies, formerly solid Labour, former mining constituencies, people were astonished to find out from me that we were against Brexit. A shame. Yes. A tragedy, actually. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Talking of dodgy leadership, let's move on to the Trump state visit, shall we? Um, it, you know, it seems that it may or may not happen. Apparently, the reason it may not happen is that Trump doesn't want to come, supposedly, if there have been protests. Now, you've written about this in The Observer, Catherine. We had Owen Jones here as one of our guests uh, yeah. on the show uh, a couple of months ago. He organised the, uh, the, the Muslim ban protests against Trump. Yeah. And so, obviously, those sort of protests have worked. So if there's a chance that he does 
think about coming, we need to organise more protests to make sure we put him off completely, don't we? Well, I don't know. I think you have to kind of rank your protests a bit. And although I, you know, I, I do loathe Trump and everything, I, you know, I don't think he's actually quite as bad as the Qataris or as the Saudis. You know, he's, he's not um, a monarch. You know, he, there are elections there. Uh, he can be got rid of. And, you know, much as I loathe him, the idea of picking on him while, the, you know, all the royal family are very happy to take donations from and hang out with and accept charity from Qataris and any, you know, and it just seems a bit haphazard. You say that, but, they, they, you know, you think about Prince Philip. I mean, he obviously doesn't fancy meeting Trump because he's retired, isn't he? So, you know, obviously thinking, oh, I, I don't want to meet that racist, you know. <laughs> what? what? If we think about specific reasons that you wouldn't want Trump over here, I mean, the fact that he had this, you know, Lucy was talking about patriotism. You think about he had that spat with Sadiq Khan about Sadiq saying after London yeah, Bridge or disgusting. whatever. Yeah, disgusting. Yeah. But, I mean, fine, ban him. But then, if, you know, be fair dues, ban loads of the others, you know, as well. Ban the ones who are, you know, nurturing, you know, Islamist extremists who are sort of fermenting violence, you know, which happens in Qatar. I mean... It's just completely inconsistent, is the thing. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't think it's going to happen, because Boris Johnson says it is going to happen, so forget about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is there In which case, Michael Gove will make sure it doesn't. Yeah. But is there a difference between any visiting US president? You've got to have a relationship with... They, but they did this too early, didn't then they? Then they did a state visit. You've got to get a state visit and staying in yeah. Buckingham Palace and all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, very over That was, you know... I've got a solution. I thought maybe if, if they... Obviously, they're not going to fancy it, because also he, he wrote something incredibly lubricious about Kate when there were those pat photographs of her. Yes. Saying, you know, oh, come on, it's all fine, and let's have another look kind of thing. And um, I think that the way to deal with this, if he does actually come, is to get... Prince Andrew, who shares a lot of interest with Trump, I think. Um, and his daughters... He, he's probably in the video with Putin, isn't he? Yes. But his daughters, they're always touting. They're always saying, you've got to give us more jobs. We're royal too. We'd love to, you know, do jobs. And they, it's completely sorted. They can just go and stay with the Yorks and Fergie, probably, as well. And that's royal, isn't it? Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah. Or maybe instead of getting him over here, we can just send Prince Andrew yeah. over to him and uh, that, that'd, be, that'd be one way of, of getting rid of him. They'd but have then, a hell of a time. Yeah. In terms of uh, Sadiq, though, presumably you, you don't want to upset the Mayor of London if you're coming on a state visit to London. Maybe at that point Sadiq should say, well, actually, he's right. We do need more of a security clamp down in London, specifically around Buckingham Palace. I'm terribly sorry, <laughs> Donald, you're not going to be able to stay there. You know, we've got a security mm-hmm. cordon around it. The only place that's safe is a travel lodge in Croydon. Or something. <laughs> There's been a lot of talk in my isn't there? They were saying if he does come, what we need to do yeah. is everybody should line the route and turn their backs on him when Trump goes along. I was like, yeah. that's far too much effort, isn't it? You know, surely we're better to have a sort of work from home day and just nobody turn up and the streets just completely deserted. That's the slacktivist answer. Well, that's it. it. And then maybe find out what Sadiq is doing on the same day. Maybe Sadiq is going to Tesco or something, and we all line the route from his house to Tesco. <laughs> and then when Trump goes, where's everybody go? Oh, they, you know, I'm sorry, but Sadiq's on his way to Tesco, and everybody. everybody We're all wanted... in tooting today, so <laughs> yeah. it's good fun. It is good fun demonstrating against Trump. And I've got my pink hat. Have you got yeah. the pussy I mean, hat? I'm quite eager Very to get it out yeah. again and do another one. So. <laughs> I mean, that's the other reason I don't really want him to not come, because I quite fancy demonstrating. In oh, it would be a lovely... I mean, yeah. Do you remember when, day out. when David Blaine came over? Oh. The reception he got? I mean, we could... I would love to see that. Donald Trump suspended over the tents. Because <laughs> 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 even the most mild-mannered... But your old double-act partner, Henry Naylor, who is the, the mildest-mannered, loveliest man I've ever met, he even took the trouble to go and throw chips at David Blaine's well, glass I, box. I, I think what happened... You talk about people getting drunk and doing something, but I think... What happened everybody was chucking eggs and he thought he'd go further and tried he tried to do an entire breakfast at him didn't he it was eggs sausages whatever he could find even so. paul mccartney called david blaine a c-word so uh, you know that i think it would be a spectacle i think you're right i think there's yeah. a, i always have the thing with donald trump is i find him fascinating like you look at donald trump and everything that comes out of his mouth is like a constant stream of angry bitter petty nonsense and as the parent of small children i do look at him and think is he just hungry (laughs) 
give him a rice cake. Uh, be, so it is, I have mixed feelings as well. I kind of think we could do something amazing. Because yeah. I think whenever Americans come over here, like doing the comedy circuit, when you get American comedians coming over here, they always um, come into a comedy club and they always say, oh, listen, can you mention that I've been on the Late Late Show? Can you mention that I've worked with Jay Leno? Can you mention that I've been on with Jimmy Fallon? And as a British comedian, you kind of go... Um, you, you probably don't want to tell the audience that. Uh, and they're like, no, 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 those are my credits, you know. And then, the, you know, you sort of go out as an MC, you go out and you say, so this next act, they've uh, been on the Late Late Show, they've, they've been on with Ellen. And then they come on and the English audience just kind of hate them and just go, oh, it better be bloody funny then. And um, I think it's, there's, it, it, there's an awful glee in that kind of that we, way we that we We had great are. fun when we were overdoing the Montreal because all the American comics insisted on being introduced like that. And so it was all the Brit comics. And we go, he's been on Andy Pandy, the magic <laughs> roundabout, <laughs> wacky races. And we were just every shit show we could think of. <laughs> You noted anti-apartheid campaigner, Peter. You, you, you know, presumably you're looking at South Africa now being run by Jacob Zuma and, uh, you know, they, they call it uh, state capture, but there is a, a lot of corruption in South Africa. Zuma himself uh, just been done, hasn't he? But, it, you know, obviously not, not in any, but the, the court just found out that he had $23 million worth of what he said was security range was done on his, his sort of home and he said there was, he was building a fire pool because if there was a fire he wanted to make sure that there was plenty of water to be able to put it out and they, they it just happened to be a swimming pool it did <laughs> they, they went to Google Earth and they looked at this fire pool and it looked like a giant swimming pool with jacuzzi and diving boards but you, you must be very you know sad as to what's happening at the moment yeah, I, I think the corruption and the cronyism around the government is really upsetting, and a lot of the people involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, including a marvellous comrade of Nelson Mandela's, Armand Cathrada, who was on Robben Island with him, who died earlier this year, have been really outspoken about it all. And that is what is interesting, is there's a real struggle of a popular uh, uprising in South Africa at the moment, a Save South Africa campaign has been launched. And that's what makes me more hopeful about the country than other countries in Africa and elsewhere that have become corrupt in Central Europe and so on where this has happened, uh, where there's a big civil society and an independent uh, resistance building up. Uh, And so I think the ANC... Mandela's ANC will either be forced to change fundamentally and elect a successor or get rid of him early who is very different or it's going to be it's going to go down the tubes but there is a much more active democratic civil society than for example in Zimbabwe mm-hmm. where you've got Mugabe who's destroyed the freedom betrayed the freedom struggle something Mandela believed by the way but oh, it's very upsetting as it was before he died, uh, Nelson Mandela, I know for a fact, was uh, deeply distraught at um, what he was witnessing. And I read somewhere, Lucy, that you quite fancied, when you were growing up, you fancied being a foreign correspondent. Kate Aidy was your, your heroine. That was my absolute joy. Well, it was being Kate Aidy and marrying Morrissey were the two things that I most wanted to achieve. Because you'd, you'd been very happy, you know, there we go, seeing lots of death I'm... and destruction and coming home and having somebody sing about it. It would have been, <laughs> would have been particularly lovely. Coming home to a fascist, it turns out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I, I, well, I mean, I went to South Africa a few years ago. I did some shows in South Africa, and what was amazing about being a comedian there is, I think, everywhere you go as a comic, you, from the comedy circuit, you can take the temperature of the nation quite well. And when you go to America, it's it's all about race, and of course, you know, in South Africa. It, I mean, in Britain, it's all about class completely. And other people from other nations come here and they go, it's, you guys are obsessed. Like, the minute a comedian comes on stage, they tell you whether they're working class or middle class, and that's kind of weird. Um, but it was, to me, just the, the, the kind of the nuance. And uh, it was amazing, because I just thought the comedy scene in South Africa was really mm. healthy and thriving mm. and really positive and, and optimistic and incredible I mean yeah absolutely amazing that everybody was united in, in kind of wanting change and in hating me 
so but it's interesting. <laughs> I didn't have good gigs. That's what I'm saying. But uh, but no, it was a re- it was a that I know what you mean. Like that sense of kind of, of hope and positivity that but really. The came interesting through. thing I went out in February and did uh, stand up in Joburg. We talk about you know all stand up comedy being dangerous, you know, and then you compare it to a job like foreign correspondent. Mm. But actually in Johannesburg, you know, if you are talking about Zuma or you're talking about Pistorius, even you get intakes of breath. It does feel that much more dangerous to a British audience. Actually, getting a whole audience going, oh, you can't say that. It doesn't happen very often. People are fairly blasé in Britain about it. You know, much Unless more. Unless you say you're by... going to punch Mary Berry in the face or something. Yeah, like that's then, it. Know, yeah. Oh God. Yeah, that that'd be walking out. That would. Yeah. Can't believe that. <laughs> yeah. Say what you like about the DUP, but don't slag off Mary Berry. Exactly. Yeah. And um, Lucy's new show. You're you taking a show up to the Edinburgh Festival. It's called Choose Your Battles. It is. Which is, you say that you've got to, given that everything's going off at the moment, you've got to pick your fights, basically. Well, it's kind of come like what Catherine was talking about, that there is so much that's wrong in the world. What do you focus on? And I think, you know, every time you sort of complain about something, I mean, particularly with sort of feminism, you know, you talk about your everyday struggles and people say, ah, but, you know, why aren't you protect? Well, like Piers Morgan when the Women's March (laughs) went on and Piers Morgan said, well, why aren't you all protesting the Saudi embassy? And you're like, well, I've only, got, I mean, I'm a busy mother of two. I've only got so many hours in the day, really. Very, um, he was very bothered about FGM, wasn't he, as well? So yeah, for, for a day, Piers Morgan was really <laughs> concerned about FGM, and then, funnily enough, hasn't mentioned it since, weirdly. But um, yeah, so I, I kind of, I'm very bad at confrontation. So the, all my shows have a slightly psychotherapeutic angle for me I always like to get something out of them and in this one I'm trying to tackle my fear of confrontation and I I do think particularly with social media everything is so combative at the moment and if you are someone who doesn't really enjoy a spat then it's very difficult to kind of be out in the world I mean because I like I say I'm, I'm not like a heavily political comic but if you say anything you always get some backlash on social media when uh, in terms of Brexit I remember I was on a radio show and and I was very pro-Remain and they said oh come and surely you can think of something positive to say about leaving the EU and I was like well you know I wasn't keen on the way they treated Greece and the common agricultural policy is kind of nuts and also the French do poo in the shower and poke it down with their toes um, and uh, you know no. Which, <laughs> rule of three. Rule of three. Rule of three. And, you know, and I thought, oh, that's a funny little throwaway comment. Until I was contacted by the French embassy, um, and you know, so it's, it's it's just kind of it's a weird time to be a comedian. And what did the French you're... embassy say? Were they going? It's not our time. It's not the time. <laughs> yeah. We do not do that. Uh, you know. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it's their fault for having those toilets. Anyway, I, you know, I'm not going to get into further trouble, but um, it's, I just think there's something quite interesting at the, because there's a phrase that I only recently heard for the first time, which is, is this the hill you want to die on? Which I had never heard. I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, but it is like when you decide to engage in a debate on social media about something, it's like, oh, do I really want to have this be the thing that I am defined by the you know there's issues you know things like free speech which I always thought was a very simple thing you know yes I'm in favor of free speech and recently like I've been aware that my feelings about free speech are sort of much more complicated than I had you know to me free speech is it's you know you can say what you want without fear of persecution and we're very lucky in this country you can say something like Prince Andrew is a useless twat for example without fear of persecution or indeed contradiction Uh, (laughs) I think most of us agree you can't if you're a member of Her Majesty's Privy Council well I hope never to be (laughs) I think the, the French would veto it. Peter, the sacrifices. Uh, I know. <laughs> but yeah, no, you know, and then there's all this sort of, you know, people banging on about free speech when really what they mean is free amplification. People like, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, who, if you're not aware of him, he's what would happen if one of Jedward joined Hitler Youth, basically. He's like this kind of. <laughs> Yeah, and, and there's all these people who are sort of say, oh, my free speech is being impinged, I'm being thrown off Twitter. But, you know, and I, and I just, I don't know, and I'm very confused about the world and about the nature of debate and where it's going, and so I thought I would explore that. Lovely. And you're going off to the Edinburgh Festival. Now, um, we're taking this show, uh, I've never been to Latitude, we're taking this oh, show lovely. to Latitude uh, in, in the next few weeks. Um, tell us what to expect. I mean, I've been to Glastonbury a lot. Um, if you had to characterise Glastonbury, you might say it was... 
younger hippies who've, who've now got old, uh, you know. And, and Latitude you know, is even older. Is Because, okay. <laughs> I mean, the thing about, you know, you go to Glastonbury and it's basically people you know have been going for 30 years and, and who are showing the young hippies basically what Glastonbury's all about. You've got a lot of the youngsters who are there with the, the sunscreen and drinking water and all the old people absolutely <laughs> mashed off their noggins doing sort of snow angels in the mud, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the time they get to Latitude, they are just, you know, it's flashing back to the 90s and the Happy Mondays and just drooling quietly, just uh, just insensible in but a But it's more art-based at Latitude, is that No, it? it's lovely. I'm, I'm being ridiculous. No, Latitude is a beautiful, wonderful festival. And it is... I tell you, I thought it was quite interesting about Glastonbury where they were saying, oh, yeah, of course they like Jeremy Corbyn at Glastonbury because it's all, you know, it's all rich people and it's very middle class. But, I mean, I went to... Glastonbury when I was skint and I you know I don't know I do think that there is a, a you know you don't get your name chanted to that degree without oh, Stormzy yeah I've got you so um <laughs> we'll go to questions very shortly um let me just before ask you're thinking of questions I know that there's going to be an awful lot of the Slacktivist Action Group keen to ask a question um but uh, just to tell you what is coming up uh, over the next uh, few weeks we will be at, at Latitude we will have uh, Sophie Walker the leader of the Women's Equality Party we will also have uh, India Knight from the Sunday Times and we will have Maya FOA from Reprieve, which is the organisation set up by Clive Stafford-Smith. And we will be here on July the 24th with Clive Lewis, MP, who's just been re-elected Norwich South, and we will have Miranda Sawyer and Glenwall. So two dates for your diary. Anybody who's listening to the podcast, feel free to contact me on anything you like on andyparsons.co.uk. So hopefully that's given our audience enough time. Hands up, anybody who's got a question for any of our panellists tonight. Can anyone explain to me, Theresa May... There she is, the Prime Minister, a human being apparently lacking in all human empathy and any ability to speak on her feet. I totally agree with that. Uh, <laughs> it seems somewhat of a rhetorical thing, but uh, Peter, over to you. What, what, what do you make of it? Will she survive? Well, I'm interested in what Catherine and, and Lucy's point of view are, but it is extraordinary how you can be the unassailable, strong and stable Prime Minister at the beginning of an election campaign and a total waster at the end of it. It is extraordinary. Even her body shape and her language, uh, and her body language and so on, has completely changed. You she know, was she doing looks... that power stance, wasn't yeah. she, that they were all doing for a while? Now she's kind of crouching apart. away. And yeah. it, I mean, you know, politics is a very, very harsh business, mm. uh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, when you are under that glare, it picks out your weakest points and it kind of yeah. seeks them out. Mm. And it kind of, you know, and somehow she's gone from hero to zero in a matter of weeks. And I don't think she can ever recover, Don't which you. I think is a good thing because it changes, um, apart from being Labour, I mean, it, it changes the whole dynamic because there was an arrogance about the approach to Brexit and her general approach to, to politics where they were in charge. You know, she was going to get a landslide majority, blah, blah, blah. And people just said, no, we're not having this. Except, you know, could have been Boris. I mean, she's only there by default, isn't she? That's the thing. She wasn't a natural fit for that job, actually. She got it because Gove and Boris and Cameron messed everything up so completely comprehensively. And, you know, she's not fit for that job at all. And she's, I find it excruciating to see her. But I find her, I have to say, I find her much less excruciating than any time Gove, you know, Murdoch's creature, interview, sucking up to Trump, lying Boris, I mean, lazy idiot, you know. I mean, they've, just, they've done terrible things. And when you see what they... And the lies they told about Brexit, she didn't actually do any of that. She's useless. She's useless, you know, she can't yeah, she think... She was just the thing. least worst well, person But I don't think she's time. actually... Fundamentally. It's not much of a choice between the three, though, really, is it? Yeah. Well, no, but if you think that it was a toss-up between May and Andrea Ledson, then you think we, we, yeah. things worked okay, out the for the country. Yeah. Yeah. Ledson, Len, and they're all back now. That's the other thing. You know, they're, they're in, now that she's sort of failed, they're all back. Ledson telling us to be patriotic. I mean, the only things you thought you couldn't believe they were oh, hearing. I never thought I'd want David Cameron to be back so much. You know, I don't think I've reached that stage. I'll be honest. <laughs> He's, done, he's in his writing caravan now, quite happily. And, what, isn't I mean, he t- I feel taking, like... taking selfies of his own feet, isn't he? Yeah. That's what he's, yeah. 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 He's having a great time, isn't he? <laughs> he, is, I mean... he was probably trying to take a photo of something else. Is all he managed to do? <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of, on a personal human level, I kind of feel sorry for her because the pylon has begun 
and you know you just watch it and you kind of go I mean but then you say is there any way back but um, Jeremy Corbyn I mean I kind of thought that absolute character assassination that was done on him was going to be decisive and you know and I was oh it's Michael Foot all over again they're unelectable and I must admit I'm Does she just need to get a tune that she can put her name to you know (laughs) so everybody can chant it at Glastonbury Well Maggie May it already exists (laughs) There we go Although it doesn't actually say her name in it does it No I mean it's I I just kind of feel like it's it's just an awful creeping long, painful, agonising demise now, isn't it? And it's just, it's painful to watch. I, I think just... the DUP thing, though, actually. No, I think, actually, the DUP thing now... Before that, I did feel sorry for her, and now, actually, I don't. Yeah, I think it's right. so appalling. Yeah. I think making an alliance with people who are anti-abortion, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, is abso- absolutely beyond the pale, and the gay rights thing. I don't know how she could do that. Uh, can, is, it, is it mean now that the DUP can... They've got an interest. They can... They can, for example, affect what we do with the health service, our government does. But we can't, for example, make, force them to let women from Northern Ireland be able to come here and have abortions on the NHS. It's no, not. because no, abortion, gay rights, gay marriage and so on is devolved within yeah. Northern Ireland. So if they do get the Northern Ireland government up and running again, then the politicians of Northern Ireland, including the DP, will have a say in it. Because the system works by a system of vetoes. So their tentacles come here, but... Well, no, no, no. What no, is the, interesting the is... Theresa May can say that uh, she's quite happy for the NHS to pay for people to have abortions from Northern Ireland. It's just that Jeremy Hunt has said that he's not willing to pay to put that money in so yeah. the people from Northern Ireland... So there, there, is a, there is an initiative in Parliament, I think it might be a private member's bill, to allow women yeah. in Northern mm. Ireland to have it on the English NHS, and I think yeah. that requires a change in the law. So it, they could does. presumably yeah. veto that... Yeah. by their vote. But yeah. I don't think they can veto it getting to the vote in Parliament. But they can hold her to ransom and her party to ransom. Yeah, that, in that kind of thing they can. Just, yeah. just but to, more just, important in the peace process. Just to a tune of, of a billion pounds, uh, 100 million for each, uh, for each DUP. And, uh, and why not for Wales? Why not for Scotland? Why yeah. not for all the English regions? It's just so shocking. Yeah. Can any, if anyone can explain the Barnet formula to me afterwards, I'd be very <laughs> grateful. <laughs> well, we look forward to that Population-based. That's helping. Okay. That's it's, it's a clue in the right direction. Yes. That was such a brilliant question. We have no time for any more questions. <laughs> so, congratulations on that one. We've talked about that one so much that we have run out of time. So, many thanks to everybody for coming. If there are people who are listening on the podcast, then uh, please subscribe. Basically, you just press a button, it just goes straight into your inbox. And it's the selectivist thing to do because you don't have to press any other buttons. It's just waiting there for you whenever you want it. You can also, if you've got loads of energy, rate and review it. That would be great. And also, uh, in terms of please spread the word in every way you can. Please come along to another show, listen to the podcast, tell your friends, whatever it may be. Obviously, have a bit of a lie down after that, because as a slacktivist, you've done three things, and that, that will need something of a lie down. And we also encourage people to try and do one thing between shows. So... Um, this time around, um, obviously, if you hear that there is a Trump protest, please get involved. Um, but maybe we could plug the Pride Parade. The Pride Parade is uh, on July the 8th. doesn't matter if you're cisgender or LGBT or LGBT plus or LGBTI or whatever the current term is. Or DUP. DUP. Well, obviously, wouldn't it be brilliant if somebody from the DUP gets the wrong parade, turns up... <laughs> to the love parade and goes the orange order has changed since I last went on one of these no what someone's done him a bowler hat (laughs) wearing a sash but yes we would like very much to thank all of our guests this evening so please give it up for Peter Hayne for Catherine Bennett and for Lisa Porter thank you to all of you and hopefully see you next time thank you very much cheers tonight Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.